why things go wrong and how to put them right, tonight we kind of turn a corner a little bit in the study when the problem you face isn't of your own making. Let me just quickly do a little bit of a review. We've been studying the scriptural approach to solving problems. Uh, Most of this series has been dedicated to Problems that come from, even if we don't always trace it this way, but if we only had all the facts, problems that come from our own sinful choices. And we looked at uh, getting out of trouble and staying out of trouble. Then we looked at uh, scriptural problem-solving passages, the Ten Commandments, guidance for our actions, the Beatitudes, guidance for our attitudes, 1 Corinthians 13, full of direction for the relationships in our lives. And then we studied, if you remember, the importance of honesty when looking into our hearts. Remember the lazy man, the book of Proverbs, who wouldn't go outside because there was a lion in the streets? We took a whole service going over that. You have to face the actual truth about your situation before God's word will ever do any good. Finally, we took three weeks kind of locating Principles of conduct that are given in God's Word so that there's direction for situations, even situations that aren't specifically mentioned and covered in the concordance of your Bible. And we saw that God's Word will give guidance to the hungry heart. It is helpful, it is timeless, and that there are principles. Once you know them, study them, learn them, you can take them and apply them to cross-cultural, cross-time situations. They'll work for everyone. That's kind of where we've been on this journey. So where to go next? Well, sooner or later you have to take all this data, all this download, and you have to actually apply it to your life, to your problem, to your situation. Information uh, in the mind by itself uh, is useless. I mean, true, Information has to at least reach the mind before you can do anything else, but it must never just remain in an intellectual aspect. It has to be put into action, into solving problems at hand, and that's where we are tonight. Even if the problem isn't of your own making, and you remember the first first study in this series, determining the source of your problem. So here are some of the first steps to take. Some of the first steps to take when you want God's help with a difficult situation. If I were to survey the group here and were to ask, how many have ever been in a difficult situation? How many have ever been in a difficult situation? See, now the amazing thing about this is there's about 15 people here. And I know you're as old as I am and you've never been in a difficult situation. And I just envy you. I really do. The first steps. This isn't all you have to do. We're going to do this for a few weeks more. Here are the first steps. Where to start? One. Make your heart pure before you actually go to work on your circumstances. Make your heart pure before you actually start to work on your circumstances. And the rule is simple. 
It's, it's hard to implement life this way. But before anything good can happen in your circumstances, something good has to happen in your heart. In other words, God will not do a good work with a bad heart. So, regardless of where the problem comes from, some are of my own making and some aren't, but regardless of where the problem comes from, I have to make sure I start right. I have to start with a Christian method. In other words, I'm not just looking for any solution to my problem. As a follower of Jesus, I recognize which options are open to me and which ones aren't. And so the first step, when you're in a difficult situation, you're not sure what to do. It, it tends to be confusing. You get, you get that buzzing in your head. The first thing to do is to stop and say, what's the Christian track in this situation? What's the Christian route? What's the Christian approach? And the idea behind this is God has committed himself to the helping of the righteous. Now, I need to explain that. You get verses like Psalm 34, 15 to 17, where it says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Do you have that in your notes? And is it the same translation? Does it read just like I read it? Okay, let's start again and read that with me. Would you? 15, 16, and 17. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. And then many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So there are these clear statements. Now, I'm going to explain something about that in a minute. But there are these clear statements about how God delivers people. Um, The difference between righteous people and unrighteous people isn't that unrighteous people experience difficulties and righteous people don't. We know better than that. The difference is... God sets himself to work on behalf of the righteous. Troubles come to everyone. The Bible says so. But troubles come to the righteous as an opportunity for God to manifest his good hand in their growth and steadfastness. Now, you can read those verses, at least... This comes to my mind. You can read verses like we read out loud and then Psalm 34, 19, and you think, well, good grief. Uh, I don't... Do I have to qualify for God's help? Like, how good do I have to be before God's going to help me with my difficult situation? He comes and delivers the righteous. He comes and ministers to the righteous. Let me explain. That doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It doesn't mean God sets the bar in a certain place and... And if you, if you reach it, you have to qualify to get God's help. If you're good enough, then when you cry out to God, he will come and help you in your situation. And if you aren't quite good enough, you can cry out to the Lord, and he just goes, mm, sorry. The perfection that's being talked about is perfection of heart. 
That's what's being called for. And what I mean by that is, when I call out to God, there has to be the intention in my heart. No matter how difficult and costly, whether it's what I want in this situation, whether the pain ceases or doesn't, whether the situation goes away or stays, but the intention of my heart is, Lord, I'm bringing this to you, I'm calling for your help, and I want more than anything for you to be glorified in this, more than I want to have steps to secure my own life in this situation. A perfect heart. I'm not coming to you like the atheist comes to you. I'm coming to you wanting you to know you are my tower of strength. You are my refuge. I want you to be glorified. Perform your good will in my life as I come to you as your child. And what you say, I will do. I said a few weeks ago, and it stayed in the minds of some women. I guess it was a good illustration. You can't go to God the way you go to a decorator for your living room. Where you just get opinions. This color would be nice. Oh, you like this fabric? You, could do that. you can't do that with God. When you go to God, you have to be committed to him. What you say, thy will be done. Seems somebody fairly famous taught the church to pray, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. I guess that's what I mean by a righteous heart, a pure heart. It's, there's, there's an intention there that, that, that God will be honored through his work in my life. The New Testament expression of the same truth, you know, Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. To those who are called according to his purpose. It's, it's his purpose. See, that's the calling on my life. His purpose. God's committed to work on behalf of the righteous. He works on their behalf when they call on him. But there's no commitment to deliver people who, who don't even have that stance of heart. That God be pleased and God be glorified as he works. The difference between the unrighteous and the righteous isn't the same as the difference between believers and unbelievers. Christians can, at times, behave unrighteously and call on the Lord in the middle of their unrighteousness. Look at the whole Old Testament history that unfolds. God's chosen people. And it's given to show that God's people can and do act in unrighteous ways And when they do, they experience bondage rather than deliverance. And many times, under the heat of trial, people can call upon God because they want relief. Even when they don't really have the kind of pure hearts that want to follow God in other matters. That's with the book of Judges. We went right through the book of Judges several years back. Probably should do it again sometime. It's a great book. Do it right the second time. It works like this. Here's what I'm getting at when the righteous call upon God. If I call upon God for help when someone has wronged me, but I'm angry and resentful and striking back at them for what they have done, God is not going to bring deliverance into my life. Okay? That's what I'm trying to say. If I call upon God for guidance in a time of confusion and panic, but don't yield to him in other areas of my life where I know what I'm doing is unpleasing to him, 
then, then God won't deliver when I call out to him for direction and guidance. I'm playing with him. If I call out to God for deliverance from trial when I'm angry at him for getting into that situation in the first place, God's not going to bring deliverance into my bitter heart. In other words, just the act of calling on the Lord. We do this, church. Just the act of calling on the Lord all by itself is no indication of a righteous heart. James is accurate. We can ask amiss. You can miss when you ask. God has committed himself to hear the cry of the righteous. So make sure your heart, by that I mean your your attitude, your motive, your ambition, your response. Make sure it's holy and Christ-like. You don't have to have all the answers. I don't mean you have to be all-knowing. You don't have to have the wisdom to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But you do have to come with a heart that genuinely wants God's will and way unfolding in your life. That's always the first step, okay? So the very first thing is, whether the problem is of your own making or whether it's from another source, we got chairs. I hate seeing people standing like chairs, chairs, chairs. They're right there, but they won't move themselves. I'm a giver. What can I say? Two. Stay open to the power and presence of the Holy Spirit by avoiding wrong reactions to your circumstances. It's like the first point, but it's slightly different. God has, read the promises. We just read a couple. God has made his help more available than most people think. The Bible says he's not far from any of us. How good, how good is that? He's not far from any of us. You don't have to do anything great to receive his help. You do have to avoid responses that are destructive. It relates to this morning's message. It just is coincidence that we're down this track both in James and in this series at exactly the same time. What I mean is this. You don't have to earn God's help. God's help is free, gracious, promised, but you do have to stay out of the way. You do have to keep from hindering God's provision for your present need. And the most common problem Christians face in their time of deep trouble is responding to their problem in ways that cut off the flow of God's grace just when they need it the most. Here are some of the most common grace-hindering human responses to problems. Let me just give you a couple of them. I know you people would never do this, but just in case. First, anger. Anger. There are so many texts, the Bible actually says more than we're comfortable hearing on the subject of human anger. James 1.20, we'll get there on Sunday mornings. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. All right. Do you remember the first point where we just were a minute ago? A righteous heart. The intention to please God, to walk in his ways, to receive his touch and grace. Now, if there's ever a verse that says, and by the way, here's what will mess this up. James says, 
my anger creates a righteous heart the way water treats a fire. Man's anger does not produce, there's the understatement, the righteousness of God. The reason James has to say that is this. Anger always always feels like a proper response to mistreatment. I'll tell you the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Righteous anger is my anger. Unrighteous anger is your anger. (laughs) I guess the point I'm trying to make is James has to say your anger, Don. You're calling on me. You're looking for help. You want, you say to please me and walk in my ways and experience my grace and my help and my sustaining strength in your time of need. And, and your anger, either a people Luck, whatever you want to call it. You're just upset about this and your, your anger always feels right to you because you really have experienced something unfair and your situation really is harder than anyone else's and it really is time that you got a fair shake in life. Anger always feels righteous, so it always feels like I'm not doing anything wrong and that's why James has to say, You are shutting the door in God's face to work in your situation. It happens in churches all the time. People get angry, and they get upset, they quit, they do this, they do that. And, And James just says, I'll tell you what's not being produced here. The righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. James says, my anger will never link my life up with the righteous plan of God for my life. He has a plan for my life. He has one for yours, too. And your anger is going to... It's like when your GPS just won't work and won't connect to any satellites. Your anger just disconnects you to God's plan for your life. You won't be able to see where you're going. It's not going to unfold. My anger may seem to release my power, but I will forfeit the power of the Spirit. I just consider this. It's not in your notes or anything else. But just consider, consider the expression of the voice of our popular culture. Just on this subject of anger, uh, vengeance. Think of the movies. Think of all those brainless movies Christian people trying to form Christ-like minds, and they have the theme of some wounded warrior somewhere, somehow, bouncing back in justified rage, crushing all of his enemies. We are, we are conditioned to admire the expression of getting even. We are conditioned in the body of Christ to admire that. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he says stuff like, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. 
If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Anger. Grace-blocking responses, that's what we're talking about now. Secondly, here's the opposite. Another grace-blocking response to problems, retreat. This is different, and it sounds holier, but it really isn't. People frequently retreat from life when they don't want to blow up in anger. I'm not going to fight my enemy. I'm just going to leave. I'm just going to ignore. But what usually happens is the person retreats from more than just the problem. They frequently will shrink away from church. They shrink away from the counsel and advice of friends, members of the body of Christ. Retreat may keep you from blowing up at your enemy, but it also fosters unbelief. Sometimes a person will just immerse himself in other pursuits. Work, the office. And when you're retreating from life and God's call, immersing yourself in work is no more holy than immersing yourself in alcohol. Did you all hear that? The end result is the same. Satan's plan is to starve your soul simply by cutting off the supply lines to faith. You you can't maintain your spiritual life, nothing but, you know, your own little personal devotional time alone with God. There's a corporate dimension to spiritual nourishment that can never be replaced by devotional habit. Never. If the devil can con you into believing that you can stay spiritually sharp simply by reading your Bible at home and keeping up a personal prayer time, he has won a great victory. You you will start to shrivel up spiritually, but only other people will notice it. You won't notice it. You'll become spiritually anorexic and think your response is normal. So we've looked at two destructive Grace-quenching responses. Anger, retreat, and I want to do one more. Unbelief and despair. I put those together because the first almost always leads to the second. The battle is with unbelief. And losing that battle is what results in despair. This goes back to the very first message. I know you won't remember it in this series. The key to everything is approaching whatever problem you face. The first point even in tonight's message. The key to everything is is approaching whatever problem you face with a Christian perspective. Remember, a righteous heart. The first thing isn't to fix your circumstances. The first thing is to fix your own heart. Everything hinges on that kind of approach. And, And perhaps we can best define the Christian approach by defining the opposite. What are the marks of a worldly approach to a problem. And right at the core is this. This is the worldly assumption. My circumstances are the most important factor in the comfort of my present life. My circumstances are the most important factor in the comfort 
purpose, significance, all sorts of words you could put in there, the meaning of my present life. And the Christian approach is different. The Christian approach always says, my circumstances are the most externally obvious part of my present battle, but they are not the most important factor, nor are they the most determining factor of my steadfastness and growth in faith and development in my Christian walk. The battle of ordinary daily problems is a battle between belief and unbelief in the goodness and faithfulness of God. That's what life is all about. So we've looked at two steps toward involving the power of God in your life. We've done it tonight. If you can think back. First, make sure your heart is pure before you go to work on circumstances. And second, make room for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit by avoiding grace-quenching responses. That's where we've been. Now the third step. Stop. Take enough time to evaluate your problem in the light of Scripture and regulate your approach by divine revelation rather than human emotion. I get that from texts like the best-known passage or one of them in the whole Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. That's an important phrase. In all your ways, acknowledge him. See, here's my circumstances. This is where I fix this, God. I'm calling out to you, fix this. And God says, in all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. So we've looked at the teaching of the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, 1 Corinthians 13. If you face a situation not covered in the scriptures by name, then go over the principles. We looked at that as well. But here's the important point. You you have to take the time to do this. And problems, major problems, serious problems, tend to just knock you off balance a little bit to, to, to cause you to rashness. Quicker responses than should be. That's the problem with anger. It's almost always a reflex thing. And reflex anything gets you into trouble in your Christian walk. Here's what I'm suggesting. Take the time to write down the courses of action that you honestly know are already ruled out for you as a Christian. And determine, if you see that in your notes, not to violate God's word, even if you must suffer temporarily for your obedience. So I might not know. Here's my situation. I might not even be sure where this problem, why I'm in this situation. What did I do to deserve this? Those questions don't usually take you very far. The why questions rarely take you very far. The, here's what will take you further. Here's the situation. Can't explain it. Don't like it. Don't know why I'm in this situation. Why would God allow this? Why this? Why that? You can do that, but it's mental gymnastics after a while. Here's a better approach. What do I know for sure are responses to this situation 
that I, as a follower of Jesus, am not allowed to engage in. So some things will become clearer. Eliminate the wrong options. Vengeance, right? Anger at God. Separating myself from believers. Holding a grudge. Not honoring God in other areas of my life because he isn't doing what I want him to do here. It happens all the time, church. It happens all the time. God's not playing fair with me. Why should I play fair with him? So sit down and you can at least help yourself greatly by saying, in this situation that's confusing as anything to me, hard, I don't like it and I don't know which way to turn, but I know which ways I can't turn, here's seven of them. Start there. Start there. And you know what? When you do that and you bring them honestly to the Lord, he will look and see, oh, a righteous heart. And our first point, what kind of person does God like to manifest himself to? Someone with a righteous heart. That's what that phrase Lean not on your own understanding means. Following God in faith means refusing your natural instincts. That's what the walk of faith is all about. You must believe that in the long run, God's way will bring the most success. I said this morning, God's will is what you would choose for your life yourself if only you had all the facts. That's the stance of faith. Because you can't prove it. Four, and we're almost done. This is something I know that God is working on in my own heart. Maintain spiritual strength by keeping a thankful heart at all times. First Thessalonians 5. What wonderful verses these are. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Read it out loud with me, would you? Do you have it? Okay, read it with me. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. People come to me all the time. The number one question they ask is, Pastor Don, how can I know God's will for my life? Gee, that's quite a mystery. This is the will of God... In Christ Jesus for you. You want to know God's will for your life? I got it. These verses, look how simple this is. If preachers were as good as Paul, eh? It's a prayer sandwich. You know know those ice cream sandwiches that we get for dessert on Wednesday nights? They're so good for you, those ones? (laughs) It's a prayer sandwich. The command to pray... Pray without ceasing. There's the command. It's sandwiched between two other commands. Rejoice and give thanks. We've had these prayer meetings at the church, and I have witnesses here. We will always, I felt so convicted, we will always come together, and when we pray, we will take the first 15 minutes, and I will have people one after another. Let us all just begin to tell God all the wonderful things he's done for us, how good he is, how much we love him, and let's rejoice and celebrate through thankfulness. Don't you dare come with a list. I need this, I need this, you're not doing a good job here, I'm not happy with what you're doing here, fix this, fix this, fix this, fix that. Oh, in Jesus' name, amen. 
rejoice, give thanks. If there's anyone who knew life could be difficult, it was Paul. I don't know what you're going through. I will guarantee you there's not a person in this room that if you put all your problems in a bag and the Apostle Paul put all the circumstances he went through in a bag and you mix them up and I said pick one, you would be thrilled to get your own back. You would not want Paul's life. Rejoice. Give thanks in everything. I may not know all the elements of God's mind and will, but I'm clearly told that one important ingredient of his will is that all the time there should be a thankful, praise-filled heart. We vastly underestimate the importance of thankfulness and praise. Everybody has their taste, worship styles and stuff, but this much is for sure. God wants people thanking him and praising him in joyful ways. And if I have a beef, I don't mean with this church, but I hear it all the time and it bugs me a bit. Usually we link expressions of praise to some kind of charismatic, shallow, emotional misfits. And this misses the point of praise altogether. Praise and thanksgiving. I mean passionate praise and thanksgiving is tied to spiritual maturity, answered prayer, growth in faith. It is never tied to a mere release of weak-minded emotional misfits. And if other people want to view me that way, that's their problem. I know how God calls on his people to give thanks in everything and to give them praise and to be joyful. It's not denying the problem. It's opening the door to God's grace. That's what builds faith. You'll surely go through enough difficulties. I see people in this room right now who are going through really hard times. Those situations will not be helped by a complaining heart. And I know that's easier said than done. But somehow this summons to to keep the heart. To keep the heart. And to trust in the goodness of God. And to express praise and thanksgiving. It's the antidote to wrong responses. All those wrong responses that we studied. You know, uh, anger, retreat, all those things. A part of the antidote to that. Is thanksgiving and praise from the heart. Not because you don't have a problem that hurts, but because you have a God who's promised never to leave you and never to forsake you, who can work all things together for good. Given enough time, and in his wisdom, he can work all things. That's not me. That's God's word. We'll look at this more next week. And everyone said? Let's pray.